0: Welcome back to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about reclaiming health, enhancing fertility, and preparing for pregnancy. I'm Kristen Cornett, a holistic nutritionist and functional wellness practitioner at Tiny Feet. And I'm Dr. Haley Knight, a naturopathic
1: doctor and certified
0: nutritionist at Synergy
1: Women's Healthcare in Portland, Oregon. Our goal with this show is to educate and empower couples with the knowledge they need to get pregnant, stay pregnant, and have the healthiest baby possible.
0: thank you so much for joining us this week. We certainly hope that you're able to find everything that you're looking for here on the podcast, but if you need additional resources to help you on your fertility journey, you definitely have some options for how to learn more from us. If you're looking for personalized one-on-one guidance for your health or fertility struggles, you can learn more about working remotely with me, Kristen, by visiting my website at tinyfeet.co or you can schedule a free 20-minute phone consult right now through the link in the episode description. If you're local to the Portland, Oregon area, you can learn more about seeing Dr. Haley in person at her clinic by visiting drhaley.com. We've also created an online course together called Fertile in 5 Masterclass, which walks you through everything you need to know to prepare for a healthy pregnancy. Visit bit.ly forward slash fertile in 5 to learn more about the course and get signed up. If you'd like to get a free preview of what you can expect in the and 5 course and learn all about the most important nutrients and supplements to include in your preconception and pregnancy routine, you can sign up for the free mini course called How to Choose the Best Prenatal Supplements, and the link to enroll is in this week's episode description. You're listening to episode 70, where we're going to be talking all about progesterone with naturopathic doctor and women's hormone expert, Dr. Carrie Jones. Since we started doing question and answer episodes on the podcast over the last two months, many of you have been asking about how to look into the root cause of low progesterone and of course, how to increase your levels to support fertility and a healthy full-term pregnancy. So that is exactly where we're going with today's episode. We'll be talking with Dr. Jones about where and how progesterone is made in the body and why it's so important for reproductive health, how to properly assess your progesterone and what level is optimal for fertility, specific health and lifestyle factors that influence progesterone production and what symptoms might point toward low levels, why it's important to focus on more than just the luteal phase when you're trying to improve progesterone production and the most effective natural approaches to getting progesterone back online so you can support fertility and a healthy menstrual cycle. We're very excited to have Dr. Jones back with us this week to talk through this very important topic. If this episode resonates with you and you're looking for someone to assess your hormones from a functional perspective, I would love to help you. Go ahead and schedule a free consult to learn more about working with me and getting a personalized protocol to balance your hormones. All right, so let's introduce you to our guest this week and get started on the interview. Dr. Carrie Jones is an internationally recognized speaker, consultant, and educator on the topic of women's health and hormones. She graduated from the National University of Natural Medicine School of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon, where she also completed her two-year residency in women's health hormones, and endocrinology. Later, she graduated from Grand Canyon University's Master of Public Health program with a goal of doing more international education. She was adjunct faculty for many years teaching gynecology and advanced endocrinology and fertility and has been the medical director for two large integrative clinics in Portland, Oregon. She is now the medical director for Precision Analytical, Inc., the creators of the Dutch Hormone Test. We hope you enjoy the interview.
1: Welcome back, Dr. Carrie Jones. Thank you so much for being on the podcast again.
2: Oh my gosh. I was so excited when you sent me the email and invited me back. I love you guys. So this is going to be great. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, you are a wealth of knowledge
1: uh, when it comes to hormones and obviously a bunch of other things, um, women's health related. And so we're really excited to dive into our topic today, which is going to be all about progesterone. So I think this is going to be a really popular episode. I know a lot of our clients and patients and listeners um, have so many questions about progesterone. So this is going to be really good, hopefully clearing up some confusion around that.
2: And progesterone is definitely, you know, who doesn't love progesterone? Because it's, it's the calming, soothing, relaxing hormone. And I think all women need a little bit more than that, more of that, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: It's, it's unfortunate. I mean, we, as we talk about it, it's unfortunate that we actually end up like lowering our progesterone with the things that we do on a day-to-day basis. And when really it's like, come on, universe, can you just give us more progesterone in those <laughs> times of need? <laughs> so we're, we're going to um, talk about how we can actually do that. So that's going to be really great to talk about. Uh, First, let's actually tell the listeners how and where progesterone is made in the body. So just the basics.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's primarily made in the ovaries once a woman has ovulated. So on the follicle, so the follicle is what houses the egg. um, The follicle has cells that are all around it. And one of your cells is called a theca cell. And that's what makes your androgens like testosterone. Um, And then those convert into estrogen and your granulosa cells, and then once you kick the egg out and you ovulate, you, those two cells, feca and granulosa, convert into another fancy cell called a lutein cell, and lutein cell's job is to make progesterone until the placenta is strong enough to take over, and then the placenta makes progesterone, but for obviously a lot of women, women getting pregnant, not what they want to do, <laughs> and so that we make progesterone for about two-ish weeks, um, and then when she's not pregnant, it goes down. So it's sort of, it's really important in those two weeks because the body's like, hey, just in case you get pregnant, we're going to really try to help you make progesterone um, until the placenta is strong enough. So it's off those little le- lutein cells that we make it. Yeah. And so some listeners might
1: um, have heard of the corpus luteum. So that's kind of what she's talking about yeah. is that follicle turning into the corpus luteum. And um it, you know, it's like a little yellowish structure sitting on your ovary and that's what's making progesterone
2: full of lutein, which is why
1: it got its name.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Full of antioxidant lutein. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's how we're making progesterone. Uh, I think it's important for people to also understand that, again, emphasizing that we're only making it for two weeks or approximately two weeks, maybe a little less for some women. Uh, so in the first half of our cycle, we're not making progesterone. Mm-mm. So why is progesterone so important to fertility and the early stages of pregnancy? And
2: tell us what can happen if it's too low. Oh, absolutely. Progesterone is appropriately named, right? It's progestation. So it's the hormone that's like, yes, let's keep this baby growing and thriving while you know it's in the uterus, which is wonderful. So when progesterone is made from the corpus luteum, it is made pretty much for about the first um, like eight to 10-ish weeks from your corpus luteum. And then at that point, the placenta is supposed to be strong enough to take over progesterone uh, production. So it's, there's a big switch that happens that the corpus luteum like, it's like a tag team, right? Tag team, the corpus luteum's like, all right, you got this. The placenta is making progesterone and that helps sustain the pregnancy But what can happen unfortunately for a lot of women is that they go into pregnancy and their corpus luteum is not very strong. They're not making uh, very robust levels of progesterone and they fall short of that tag team timeline of like eight to 10 weeks. And so the placenta is not ready and the corpus luteum, you know, peters out and the baton gets dropped. And unfortunately, that leads to oftentimes miscarriage Really, you know, early miscarriage due to the lack of progesterone. So, we like progesterone to be nice and healthy leading up into pregnancy because we know that's a big one to prevent early miscarriage for a lot of women.
0: And it's also also important for priming the uterine lining for implantation. So it's really important to have high enough levels in those early stages of pregnancy, but it's also really important in that second half of your cycle in that luteal phase to make sure that you can prepare that lining for a strong implantation. So infertility is another possibility.
2: Huge. And it's actually even before then, it's your estrogen in the first part in your follicular phase that pushes out the progesterone receptors in your uterus so that you can get nice big and fluffy uterine lining that's like super inviting for implantation so we completely love and and think all about progesterone as pro- progestation but estrogen plays a role as well it just plays a role in the first part of the cycle so it's so it's so interesting you know like like the whole cycle from start to finish you have to take into consideration as you two talk about all the time when it comes to fertility, you can't just micro focus on, you know, the last two weeks or maybe even the last seven days or the first trimester. Like you have, you literally have to go from, you know, day, day zero, day one Mm -hmm. and make sure it's good through the whole cycle.
0: Yep. We're gonna jump into that a little bit later in the interview. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about when levels should be measured when we're assessing progesterone. So to make sure that we get an accurate assessment of what's happening with that progesterone level in the luteal phase, when should we be measuring it?
2: Such a great question, because I'm sure you two get this a lot too, where your patients will bring you their results and they're like, okay, here's my progesterone, and you're like, all right, well, when did you get this drawn? And they're like, I don't know, like Tuesday at two o'clock. Like <laughs> that's so not helpful, <laughs> because right. progesterone, just like Haley said, it's it, it's only out. It should be only out in the second half of the cycle. So getting your progesterone checked in the first part, the follicular phase, is not it's not useful really at all because it's supposed to be nice and low. But what we ideally want is to check progesterone five to seven days after ovulation. So if you ovulate on day 14 then then we're looking at like days 19 20 21 of a typical 28-day cycle and that's usually what we're going for now some women know when they ovulate and they'll say well i ovulate early i'm ovulate on day 10 like all right well then you'll test day 15 16 17 and other women have longer cycles and maybe they don't ovulate till day 20 and so I'm like all right your day 25 26 27 but basically what we're trying to do just just like you said is we're trying to hit that mid luteal surge of progesterone. So it is a specific time in the cycle to see what's going on. And it's after ovulation, but before your period. Awesome. Yeah. So most women are getting this progesterone level
0: measured via serum. That's mm-hmm. the, the primary way of testing, especially in conventional medicine. So all of my clients that come to me, they, if they've had progesterone measured, it's been a serum level. So let's talk about what an optimal serum progesterone level is.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I, for fertility purposes, I like an optimal serum to be above 10. I want it to be right in the double digits. That's what I'm looking for. And this is not pregnant. This is just the optimal uh, luteal level that I'm going for is above 10. Some women will be like seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there. Um, and so then I'm looking at other, just other stuff, other health markers to you know, make sure, do we need to, we work to get that higher? What's their history? They have a history of miscarriage. Do they have a history of PMS and PM estrogen type symptoms, where I know progesterone's probably low, and then as you get lower than that, as you get lower down in the single digits, then I know that the corpus luteum's not that strong and it's not producing very good levels of progesterone. And as you get real low, then I know that they're not making, they're not ovulating. It's it's the the teeny tiny amounts of progesterone they're making is actually from the adrenal gland and not from the ovary, and that's not helpful at all for fertility purposes.
0: Yeah, so I'm looking at sure. serum. I want
2: it ten or higher.
0: Definitely. Um, yeah, so you obviously work for precision analytical, which makes the Dutch <laughs> test, um, which we love. And so that test is a little bit different. It's not directly measuring what a serum progesterone level is. It's kind of calculating that level based on urine pregnanediol, which are progesterone metabolites that um, are excreted in urine. So how well does that correlate to serum progesterone?
2: It actually correlates really well. So here's, what's really interesting. Two things. One, um, uh, the, there was a paper that was published last year in 2019 that correlated Dutch dried urine to serum estradiol and serum progesterone and showed that it correlated really well, which was wonderful. That was published in a journal article. But the second thing that people don't realize is how much progesterone vacillates in a day. So mm-hmm. it's not like on day you know, 19, we make this steady state amount of progesterone. To get progesterone to come out of the corpus lute, uh, luteum it's pulses that come from the brain. And anything you pulse means that the progesterone is going to pulse as well, it's not continuous. And so women may get their blood drawn at two o'clock in the afternoon and their progesterone is at a low point because the pulse hasn't hit. And if they got it drawn in the morning, as an, maybe as an example, they, their pulses were higher or stronger and their progesterone's higher. And so what I tell women is when you get progesterone drawn, don't just take one number at face value. We may have to do it a couple times um, it, we And when the Dutch test, we collect four samples in the day of, of urine, and then we do a weighted average of all four. So it's actually an average of those four through the day, as opposed to a one single point. And when I show women the studies on this, on how much progesterone can change in a day, they're astounded because they're like, I had no idea that I could drop a couple points or raise a couple points. Like that can be the difference between should I go on progesterone or not, or you know how strong is my corpus luteum or not, or you know what's my potential risk for um, maybe early early miscarriage or not, just because of this vacillation, and so thankfully Dutch does correlate really well to serum, but we know progesterone is pulsed, and so the pulse could be high or low depending when you draw it. So that
0: can actually result in Dutch giving a much more comprehensive picture of what progesterone is, even though it's not measuring exactly the same way that a serum test is measuring. Correct.
2: Now Dutch, I do not recommend using Dutch. Like when somebody calls me and says, I'm pregnant, should I go get progesterone done? I'm like, in the blood. Yes. Like right now. Like we don't have time to wait for Dutch. (laughs) Like you need to go right now. And the same as if I'm doing some sort of treatment and I need to know a right now answer on progesterone, I'm like, just go get your blood drawn. Like, because I'll have the result back tomorrow and that's mm-hmm. what's more more important but if it's somebody who's prepping for fertility they're looking to get pregnant they're just trying to optimize they maybe have a history of miscarriage and then I'll run then I'll like all right you know what we have time we have time we're working on this let's let's run a dutch test and let's see what your your weighted average is right yeah and that's it's, the yeah it's like nothing's perfect but I so I'm trying to like do, trying to choose the right for the right woman Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: the situation that most of our, you know, fertility based clients and Haley's patients are in is that like prep period, or they're investigating something that's not quite Mm -hmm. right. And so Dutch is an awesome option to do that. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to our next question too, of talking about symptoms of low progesterone, because it, it really is a full picture. Just getting one number from a blood draw, just like Carrie, you were saying is like, it's up and down. You don't really, as it, as a physician or interpreting that blood test, we can't really put all of our, um, you know, diagnosis in that one blood Mm -hmm. sample. And so putting the whole picture together, and if they have symptoms of low progesterone, then you can get, kind of have a better idea around like if they are needing progesterone at that time.
2: And when you see progesterone, not to cut you off, but when you see progesterone, like if they've had multiple Either blood draws, like some women will get their, their uh, like a fertility center might draw their progesterone five days in a row or on a Dutch test, if they're doing what we call a cycle mapping. So they're collecting almost every day of their cycle and getting it graphed out. It's amazing to me how many women look good initially on a blood draw, you know, they're like they're, or even a Dutch test, their one day test looks great. But the very next day is low because they're, you know, it's, it's just, again, it's pulsed. And progesterone comes out, and it forms um, like a rounded hill. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it, come, it starts to come out. It's made. It's made. It's made. It reaches its peak, and then if you are not pregnant, then it goes down, 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 into, you know, until you, until it triggers one of the triggers for starting your cycle. And so again, women, I think, think, well, I make progesterone in a steady state for the for the last two weeks, and you don't. You it's it's a, it's a gradual up, and then it's a gradual down, and so what can be frustrating for a lot of women is they'll show me their blood draw. And they're like, my blood draws on day 19 is 11. You know, like, this is great, but why do I have such severe PMS symptoms? Why do I have super heavy periods? Why am I moody? Why are my breasts so big? Why can't I, you know, maintain pregnancy? And then we look day 20, day 21, day 22, 23. And I'm like, well, you cr- you literally crash and burn. Like you can make progesterone up to day 19 mm-hmm. and then it goes down. Like it's not Cut that- her out. Exactly. Yeah. It's not this like, gradual happy fall. It's like this fall off a cliff fall mm-hmm. and women feel it. Yeah.
1: And also I know we're going to talk about this just a little bit later too, but how stress is related to like progesterone resistance. So mm-hmm. your progesterone might look totally fine, but
2: the uterus actually isn't responding to your progesterone. Right. Right. It can affect, stress can affect actual production itself. And then the receptors down in the uterus,
1: yeah.
2: which it's, which is, it's a built, well, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but like it's a built-in mechanism, right? If you're, if you have got a lot of stress, if the body perceives you was running from a tiger, then, um, it's maybe not the most ideal time to grow a baby. <laughs> so the body's yeah. like, whoa, I'm going to protect you. And we are not going to get pregnant. I'm hold she, off on that for yeah, which is a month or so smart on the body's part, but in this day and age, it just, it just sucks. It's unfair. Yeah.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about what are signs of low progesterone? How does one know or um, try Suspect. to detect if they, have, <laughs> if
2: low they have low progesterone? And we commonly talk about low progesterone in relation to estrogen.
1: Mm-hmm. So you can
2: actually have low progesterone and high estrogen or low progesterone in relation to your estrogen in your luteal phase. So it's, it's common symptoms most women can probably identify with. It's things like PMS. So it's the mood changes. It's the bloating. It's the full tender breasts. Um, It can be heavy periods, clots with the periods, um, worse endometriosis symptoms. Um, Again, the uh, insomnia, anxiety, progesterone is very calming to the brain. Uh, It affects GABA, which is our most abundant um, inhibitory neurotransmitter, which means it calms things down, right? So if we don't have enough progesterone, then women often say, "I, I have insomnia before my cycle. Like, a couple days before I get my period, I can't sleep. And a couple of days before my period, my anxiety is a whole lot worse. Like, yes, low progesterone can do that. And so it can really affect, you know, all aspects, all aspects of the body when you have low progesterone, lower progesterone. Spotting,
0: yeah. spotting before periods can also be mm-hmm. common. Yeah, you're you're uh, losing that lining that you're supposed to be sustaining with progesterone. You're losing that a little too quickly, so you might get like some brown spotting or maybe some pink spotting before, or even just a
1: short luteal phase. So somebody who ovulated say day ten, but then they start their period day twenty um, or day fourteen, they start their period day twenty four. So if you're having short, the luteal phase really should be around 12 to 14 days. Um, Ideally around 14 days, but it could be around 12, but anything um, shorter than that can be a sign of low progesterone.
2: Definitely. So for women tracking, this is really good for them to know when they're looking at like their LH surges or temperature checks or mucus changes. And then when they start their period, um, which is so wonderful about the human body. And of course we've, you know, there's, um, there's the book on it, The Fifth Vital Sign. Like, women, it's amazing to me when women, I'm like, ask them about their period, and they're like, oh, I don't know. I think it comes every month. I'm like, how do you not know? Like, it's the greatest feedback as a female that we get every month as to what, how our health is and how our stress is affecting it, and how our diet and travel and sleep and nutrition and everything is affecting just by getting a period and our symptoms that go along with it. And yeah. um, so I love when women are super dialed in and they know, you know, they do some tracking, whether they do it, hardcore, whether they're just pay attention and they're like, yep, I get changes here. And you know, this is how often it comes. And I have an app in my phone. Great. You're going to know so much about your body.
0: I love tracking. I have found it so illuminating for me. Like, I feel like I was already really in tune with my body, but it's so interesting to me to see, especially for me, because stress is a big problem for me. I can (laughs) see in my chart, like, oh man, I really went overboard yesterday or i didn't sleep well or i ate things i shouldn't have and like i can see that reflect almost immediately in my chart and especially in the luteal phase because one of the things that progesterone does and the reason that it helps you confirm ovulation on a basal body temperature chart is that progesterone increases your metabolic rate and it also increases your temperature. So that's why you see that spike in the luteal phase. And so I'll see like something wonky happen with my temps where like they'll drop off for a day if I wasn't kind to my body (laughs) the previous day or the previous few days. And so I notice things like, oh, I ate a food I knew might not work for me or, you know, I didn't get enough sleep. Or I worked too late and like was overly stimulating my cortisol at night. I noticed that in my chart.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I find it so funny. I'll tell a personal, quick personal story. Is I was looking at my on my app about my cycles, and and then I have a I have a tracker ring that tracks like heart rate variability and my sleep, and like some people have a Fitbit, right? I have a I have an Aura ring, and so every January I do a Dutch test where I track my Um, I test my cycle all month long, and then I will publish, post the results to social media. So I was trying to get all this data on myself while I was waiting for, the results just came back um, not that long ago. But anyway, on my, on my app, on my phone, it said like, you could like, what's your average, like like my app updated. So I got all this new detail about my cycle. I always thought my cycles are 28 days. And when I hit that thing on like, what's the summary about all my cycles? Um, It's like, your average is 26 days. I'm like, 26? (laughs) but in my head it was 28 I was just like yeah I'm 20 I'm a 28 day girl I'm a 28 day girl my (laughs) app was like no dingy like you're 26 (laughs) and I you know and I thank god I track and and then when I saw the summary page I averaged 26 so apparently I'm a 26 day girl I didn't know it (laughs) yeah which is helpful you know my luteal phase is two days shorter than I thought it was so that explains some things Yeah. I mean, I have a, well, I don't, I haven't
1: been doing the cycle mapping or anything like that, but I have been tracking my cycle um, pretty closely in the last six months or so. And um, I went through a pretty stressful period. And of course on my cycle, like my luteal phase dropped from 12 days down to 10 and I was ovulating a little bit later and then having a shorter luteal phase. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, stress has so much impact. So much in your cycle. And it just, you know, it's quite motivating because it's helpful once you understand how it's affecting your cycle, how you can use that as a motivator to um make sure that you have self-care and lowering stress and taking taking care of yourself because then yeah. you can really see it reflect on your cycle. And and now my cycle is actually back down or back to kind of a normal 12 to 14 luteal phase, which I'm really proud I was able to get it there. And so you're like,
2: yay. And the, yeah. the cycle is not in a silo. You know, I think women, they, they, um, they kind of put their periods and the menstrual cycle is like, Oh, that's the reproductive part of me. You know, that's over um, here. And I'm like, you know what though? Your hormones literally affect every single system in your whole body. Every mm-hmm. single system. It affects your immune system. It affects your cardiovascular system. It affects your brain health. It affects literally everything that you do. Right. And so you can't silo it and you can't blow off your period. Like, you know. Just like you said, if you're not doing hashtag all the things and self-care and there's a lot of stress and then you don't work to get it back, it's literally not just affecting your reproduction, but it's affecting the way your brain works. It's affecting the way your immune system fights viruses. It's affecting the way, you know, your skin, you know, turns over, how your GI tract works. I mean, it literally- these yeah, hormones aging. Are everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Preventive <And so> aging. <laughs> when when I when I tell women this, I'm like, you know, it's it's a lot more than just your ovaries. It's a lot more than just, you know, well that sucks. I had bad cramps and terrible PMS this month. I'm like, it really did affect every system in your body. Yeah. So
1: true. Hey, we're going to have to have you back on to talk just about that. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about what factors actually influence progesterone production. So we mentioned it a little bit earlier in the episode, but let's get more into that. And like, what should our listeners be looking for um, as far as finding answers to why their levels are low?
2: Yeah. Well, I was going to, we've talked about stress. So we're just going to start with stress because that's such a big one. Mm -hmm. When you have a lot of stress and remember stress is actual stress in your body. Stress is um, anticipated stress. And then stress is um, uh, imagined. So it doesn't matter. Your body thinks, perceives it the same way. So whether the Tiger is literally in the room. The tiger is coming in the room or you just make mountains out of molehills and you assume everything is a tiger. Your body responds the same. So cortisol and epinephrine, norepinephrine, which are produced out of your stress system, will feed back to the brain and they will say to the brain, hey brain, there's a lot of stress happening right now. And so I would suggest you put reproduction on the back burner. And the brain goes, all right, cool. And it lowers those pulses that I was talking about earlier. So the pulses to the ovaries to say, Hey, now make estrogen. Okay, hey, now make progesterone. Go down, down, down. And what can happen for a lot of women is that they will first lose progesterone production because those pulses are higher than the pulses needed to make estrogen from the brain. The amplitude is higher. And so now a woman will not ovulate. So stress will cause her to not ovulate. And then therefore fertility is a struggle, but progesterone production is a struggle. And if the stress is strong enough, high enough, big enough, then the brain nips the pulses um the other pulses down even more that are the fsh pulses and now you don't make estrogen and a lot of those times those women will skip a cycle or they will have amenorrhea no cycle right because of the amount of stress in their life and so it's not that um you know cortisol like directly you know steals progesterone there's no there's no stealing that happens it's a brain. It's a survival brain communication issue. Like now is not the month to release an egg. Now is not the month to make progesterone. Maybe now is not the month to make estrogen. So um, we're just going to shut it all down. And yeah. so by doing like what you did, Haley, you know, like you you know this and then taking the measures to like, okay, I need to put self-care into place and I need to, you know, work on this and I need to support my body with whatever it is, sleep or supplements or relationships, nurturing, whatever, then, it, the, then the brain's like, okay, we're out of fear. We're out of danger. And, the, and then try to get that cycle to come back. So I'd say stress in this day and age, which I'm sure you too would agree, like is so big. And I never, ever, ever, ever want to tell a woman who's getting pregnant, oh, it's stress. If you just stop being stressed, you'll get pregnant. Like, no, that's not helpful. But it is helpful to know the biochemistry behind it. It is helpful to know that there is that feedback system in place of like, oh, for some women, it might actually be a danger alert that's affecting the way hormones are being produced. For sure.
0: I think physical stressors too, internal stressors, things that are kind of going wrong in the body or you know, sources of inflammation, those are all things that can affect that sort of alarm signal going off
2: as well. Yeah. yeah I think about like Lyme disease and mold, you know, the viruses. Now, of course, everyone is talking about Uh, coronavirus, but other Epstein-Barr virus. I mean, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, a pandemic type virus. It can be viruses we hear about. Even having the flu. I mean, I'm sure I have women that are like, I got the flu and skipped my cycle. I'm like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. It was a priority. The priority was ovulate an egg or fight the flu. Like your body chose correctly. You want to fight the flu. Yeah,
0: I had a couple- I had a couple of clients get sick over, you know, the, the typical flu season. They're like, what happened? My cycle is doing great. And then mm-hmm. I had this really weird month. I'm like, you got sick. Your body yeah. did exactly what it was supposed to do.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's the same Even like flying, you know, like time zones. I have women that all mm-hmm. go crazy time zones. I fly a lot for work. And for the first time ever, two years ago, 2018, I had flown from, um, I had flown uh, to South Africa. Come and then and Australia in the same like two month time span, which is a lot of flying. That's sixteen hours in one direction and sixteen hours in the other direction. But anyway, when I got to Australia, my cycle was super late, and I was like, "This is oh my gosh, am I pregnant? What is happening?" <laughs> I like completely freaked out, and thankfully, a, a girlfriend of mine in Australia. I was it, I honestly I had to say to her, "Where do you buy pregnancy tests in Australia?" Because I'm hoping it's just the fact that I've flown sixteen hours in two different directions. But I actually have no idea what's going on with my cycle. And sure enough, literally as soon as I got home from Australia and just settled into my own routine in house, my period came. And I was like, Oh, there she is. Yeah, you. that's <laughs> a really good example. Yep.
1: I've I've heard that quite a bit too, people, you know, that are flying to Europe or they their cycles get delayed quite a bit with, with travel. So. Yeah.
2: Which so can be really scary if you're not trying to get pregnant, right? And you're like, whoa.
1: Yeah. And you're like, well, I'm trying to think back. Like, did I sleep <laughs> yeah. with somebody?
2: Like- <laughs> did we use a protection? Like, what was I? Yeah.
1: yeah exactly. I remember.
2: Yeah. So I would say cortisol by far is a big one. And then, you know, Kristen, as you said earlier, cortisol can affect um, like implantation, right? In the uterus. It can have a double whammy effect because it's, again, just trying to protect you from, like, are you healthy and strong enough right now? Is this in your best interest to get pregnant? Whether you're trying to get pregnant or not, right? It's still the body's all, that's what the body in, a, in the female body is always trying to judge. Like, yeah, you're the carrier of babies, whether you want to or not, which is totally fine, but that's how the body intrinsically ha- helps females. Like, are you healthy enough to, to sustain a pregnancy? And yeah. so cortisol will affect that definitely and you know i think it's also important to note that
0: this corpus luteum is incredibly dependent on nutrients your follicles mm-hmm. your ovarian function is dependent on nutrients so your uh, nutrient and antioxidant status is extremely important that makes your diet really important Huge. it also yeah and i think it's also important to note that gut health is really important to this yep. process because that's one of the primary places because so much of your immune system is located in your gut that's where the immune system is kind of, um, it's filtering things. It's looking at everything that co- that's coming into the body and going, is this okay? Is this self, is this not self? Do we need to ma- mount an inflammatory response? And that's where like this inflammatory molecule we've talked about before on the podcast, like LPS coming into the bloodstream, mm-hmm. apparently mm-hmm. that can have a very inflammatory effect on the ovaries. And one of the first ways you'll see that manifest is in progesterone production.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Even other hormones like uh, cholesterol, right? All hormones, all steroid hormones come from cholesterol. Your body's really smart. It actually puts lipid droplets of cholesterol, right, right there, right there in the cell so that your body can use it to make cholesterol. And for women who have really low levels of cholesterol, either by design, you know, familial, maybe some women are on statin medications, you know, they're on cholesterol lowering medications and they're on way too much. And then they don't realize why they can't make hormones. And I'm like, because you've taken away the reservoir of the precursor that actually makes the hormone in the first place. So cholesterol. Now, unfortunately the opposite's not true. You can't have too much cholesterol. I have women that say, well, I have an excessive yeah. amount of cholesterol. Am I making excessive hormones? Like, no, there is a, there is a, a, stop gap. The body doesn't just continually make all this hormone because you have excess cholesterol, but the, if you have too little cholesterol, that can be a problem. And then leptin, um, which is the hormone made out of fat tissue. Leptin is one of your big gauges for fertility Um, that can tell the body, they'll tell the brain, you'll tell your hypothalamus if you have enough body fat on you to even start the menstrual cycle. And so for think of those like, like extreme athletes, your gymnasts, you know, you know, things like that, even, even those with disordered eating who are down to a very low body percent, um, it's the hormone leptin is not getting released out of the fat tissue to tell the brain, you know, like, Hey, we have, we have enough, we have enough body fat on us. Um, And so the, is part of what it does is the brain goes, all right, well then we're not going to have a menstrual cycle. We're going to mess up the menstrual cycle because there's not enough, again, the whole point is not enough body fat. She's not healthy enough to sustain a pregnancy. It would put her at risk. So we're going to reduce the chances of her getting pregnant. And we see this a lot with like my, I have like pre-Olympic, you know, pre-Olympians, you know, the gymnasts, my extreme ath- athletes. <laughs> so, and sometimes not even like true athletes as in they're. Like sponsored and, and stuff cheating. sometimes it's mm-hmm. just the woman who's like well i go to soul cycle 12 twice a day i'm like twice a day <laughs> no <laughs> no no wonder your cycle is not happy <laughs> Yeah. yeah,
0: that's, you know, you see that um, with, you know, under eating, over exercising, mm-hmm. trying to cut calories too much. That is, you know, one of the potential pitfalls with a very low fat or a vegan diet. We can sometimes see that be too low in calories, not high enough in some of these essential nutrients that feed this very important signaling process and make sure that your body has everything it needs to make your hormones as well mm-hmm. as support ovarian function and the lutein cells that make up your corpus luteum.
1: Yeah. And everybody's going to be a little bit different too. So somebody who might be exercising a certain amount could be totally fine for her, yep. but then the next person right next to her is doing the same thing. And it's like, oh, she doesn't have a cycle. Right. Um, and or it's, it's hard
2: affecting to, it's, her it's hard to explain, right? It's hard to explain, especially when you're like, but her body fat percent is less than mine. Why do I, why does it affect me? And it's like, cause it's just, it's all the things, you know, like yeah. nobody's the same. So, right, bio individuality, exactly. exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, um, we do want to talk about uh, in regards to focusing only on the luteal phase to boost progesterone. That happens a lot with practitioners. I mm-hmm. think when we first were in school, that was something that we were taught, you know, that we give like luteal phase tinctures and things like that. But, um, why is that not necessarily like the best approach? And I know you mentioned this earlier as far as yeah. like how the follicular phase and estrogen is so important to the luteal phase.
2: Yeah, so I, it drives me nuts when people are like, I only give this, this right, this tincture, this herb, I only give chase in the, tree in the second half of the cycle. I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah. The first part of the cycle is what tees up the second part. So if you're not supporting the first part, if you're not doing it all, whatever it is you're doing probably all month long, then I think you're doing a big, disservice to her and not getting her luteal phase to be as optimal as it can be so i am a big fan of starting at the beginning starting at the beginning of her you know her period and doing treatments all month long so that you get the follicular phase right because in the follicular phase the the brain is telling you you're getting um the brain is making fsh to make to make estrogen you're you're choosing a follicle one follicle gets chosen, right? It's going to be the winner of the beauty pageant. It's going to release the egg and your estrogen goes up. And if you need to have this nice, healthy estrogen rise, and they say for like, you have to have estrogen up for like 40 to 50 hours. And then that helps trigger the LH surge, which is what triggers the ovulation, which is what triggers the corpus luteum formation, which is what triggers progesterone. And so it's an entire domino effect. So if you're only focused on the second half, you're only focused on progesterone and you've missed the estrogen, you've missed FSH, and you've missed LH, and you've missed the brain health, then it may not be as optimal as you want. It may take longer than you want to get the outcome you're looking for, which is progesterone production and maybe even fertility. And so that's why I'm a big fan of all month long, y'all, all all month long.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. It's, it is really important to make sure that, that we don't miss important pieces of the picture and that we're not, I mean, that's, that's a little bit of an allopathic approach too. Like you just look at the thing that's wrong and you're like, well, I'm going to give something to fix that thing without looking at the rest of the picture. And so making sure that we are being a little bit more holistic in our view and taking into account the complexity and beauty of the entire menstrual cycle for sure.
2: And I know that some of the some of the products out there are, are they're called like two phase, right? So you'll take mm. something for the follicular phase and then you'll stop and change to a different formula for the, the second half, the luteal phase. And I'm like, that's totally cool because you're covering right. both phases, right? And the other caveat is when you give progesterone. I don't give progesterone in the follicular phase if she's trying to get pregnant. I mm-hmm. give progesterone in the, in the luteal phase preferably preferably after she ovulates because there is a feedback loop to the brain that says oh she has progesterone don't ovulate so if you give it too early i find in some women you could actually stop her own ovulation and birth control right, like iud purpose, right <laughs> exactly yeah. and so if i'm going to give bioidentical progesterone like i'm trying to like prevent early miscarriage i will do it in the second half only not in the first yeah. half but otherwise yeah. Everything else, brain health support, ovarian health support, feca, granulosa, lutein health support, I'm doing kind of all month long. Yeah, and to that
1: point, uh, with giving just progesterone as a treatment within itself and not really doing anything else is also something that I don't recommend um, because low progesterone is a sign of low lower follicular health, uh, low, you're not really building that that estrogen that you talked about, that peak estrogen for 50 hours, um, or maybe just the quality of the egg isn't so good. There's some reason, there's something that's happening in that follicular phase during that cohort that's being recruited and developed that is just not optimal. and And so just giving progesterone I do give it when somebody's like, no, I'm going to keep trying and I know I have low progesterone and I just want it right now and mm-hmm. I just want it. But, um, so that's fine because there's no adverse side effects to ha- taking progesterone. Um, but it also is something where you just want to work on diet and lifestyles and reducing stress and like really working on building a healthy follicular response.
2: Cause it doesn't really fix the cause. It just helps right, manage right. the symptoms. Right. And especially if someone's trying to get pregnant. And I just put them, or we just put them on progesterone. Um, it'll get their progesterone up. But just like you said, it's not going to make the cells any healthier or stronger. It may not make implantation that great. You know, like, it's, like something was wrong and you're just throwing a Band-Aid at it. But I'll, But like you said, I will do both. I'm like, all right, let's do all the things. Yeah. And let's do progesterone at the same time to help you, you know, feel better faster or should you get pregnant if that's what the goal is, what have you, then, then we've got our bases covered. But just progesterone by itself, I'm like, well, it doesn't fix anything other than falsely raises progesterone levels yeah. in the long run, I've, I have found.
0: Well, and that's why you know, in in this situation, you know we're hopefully hitting the our audience at preconception or where they are looking for ways to kind of optimize that fertility and progesterone, and the whole health of the menstrual cycle is such a big part of that, and hopefully we're intervening at a point where we've got a couple of months at least three months to uh, you know get to that next cohort of follicles that's being recruited and give the opportunity to support that through the whole cycle so that we can increase naturally, figure out what that root cause is, you know, remove that obstacle. And you know, if progesterone support is still needed to make sure that if she gets pregnant, she has everything she needs, then great. But you know, I totally agree with Dr. Haley, got to look at the root cause Mm -hmm. for sure. hundred percent. So let's talk about what some of the options are. We've mentioned that there are all these great natural therapies out there. And of course we always tell women, you know, speak to your practitioner, make sure that you're getting personalized advice. Not every option is right for every woman, but what are some of the things that are effective for kind of managing progesterone production and improving that communication between the brain and the ovaries and that first half of the menstrual cycle as well?
2: So if we start with the brain first, um, you know, remembering things, just basic stuff first of all, like the brain hormones communicate through the blood system. So if you have uh, neck or shoulder issues, if you have tight muscles, if you are on your computer hunched over all day, Right. I, Haley's like stretching her shoulders out It's <laughs> like, oh crap. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like all of the, if you have, if you, you know, should probably you're due for a massage or you probably should have an Epsom salt bath, or maybe you should see your chiropractor, you know, acupuncture, whatever it is that improves blood flow from your brain down to the rest of your body is like key. And so, and same goes for if you've had any kind of traumatic brain injury, you know, if you are, if you're diabetic, if you're a smoker, those things, slow down and kind of gum up the works when it comes to blood flow. And therefore your hormones aren't going to circulate maybe as well Something as, as simple as maybe hydration too? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <This person> <laughs> <drinks> <laughs> water. Yes. Hydration is super important. And so I I definitely start there when it when it comes to the brain. Now, the other thing is you need good brain and nerve supply to the pelvic area, right? And so for people who maybe had surgeries who have the same sort of thing in the low back. They have tight, painful low back. They have really tight muscles. Um, like they've never, they've, they've had issues. They've had abdominal surgeries. Maybe they've had surgery for endometriosis. Maybe they've had C-sections or their appendix removed and they have all this scar tissue. Then I'm advising to do abdominal work. Again, see a body worker who can work on your low back. See a body worker who's willing to like get into your, your belly muscles and improve the blood and the nerve flow around around the, around the uterus and around the ovaries, because that's how the hormones get there. It's how the hormones get around. And so people will, I've definitely, people laugh at me and they're like, really? I'm like, really? It's the blood flow is where it's at. That's how everybody- No, truly. Yeah.
1: Even my <laughs> abdominal massage is all about yeah. the blood flow, which I've been doing a bit for myself. And it's actually really helpful. You know, I got, some of the things I mean, that you mentioned that years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Like C-section, scar tissue is really a big thing. I, it's, I, you know, it shouldn't be minimized. I think in my own head, I did kind of minimize it for a couple of years. And then
2: it's been the last
1: year or so that I'm like, you know, <laughs> that's a yeah, big thing.
2: Yeah. It's a big thing. So the scar tissue can actually affect like blood, venous return from the, like the legs up to the heart, mm-hmm. even obesity, having excess adipose tissue, like that's a lot of downward pressure. Um, and that downward pressure applies to the uterus and to the ovaries as Some well. Exercise, exercise body you know, movement, um, just anything that improves oxygenation. Even think of things like if you've got sleep apnea and you're snoring, you're not getting that oxygenation to the brain and then therefore you're not going to get proper signaling down to the ovaries. So starting with the basics is a big one. So then what I start to think of is like, okay, now we need to get from, now we've got the blood flow and we just need the brain signaling. So I'm a big fan of like what I call like brain health stuff. So we're thinking like your omega-3s, your fish oil. I'm thinking um, herbs like Bacopa, herbs like ginkgo. I'm thinking herbs like um, our supplements. Like there's something called PQQ, mm-hmm. which the name is like super long and I can never remember it, but it's a good one for brain health. Um, magnesium threonate uh, raises BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. and that's It's a magnesium, which is one of the magnesium families, but it's specific for the brain. And so I'm, Rosemary, Rosemary is a great one. Smell it, cook with it, eat it, use it. Great for brain health, raising again, BDNF. Um, and we're just trying to get the brain, you know, back on track. Cordyceps mm-hmm. for people who are into, um, you know, mushrooms. mushrooms. Yeah. Yep. Maca. There's, Maka a, there's some really
1: cool mushroom extracts uh, that includes uh, cordyceps, but also lion's mane. Lion's mane. And, yeah. chaga, am I saying that right? Yeah. C-H-A-G-A. Yep. Mm-hmm. shaga mushrooms. Um, so it's for sigmatic. We're not related at all. We're not being sponsored by it, but I actually been using it lately to try to get off coffee. And, um, and I'm really been enjoying having that mushroom extract. So
2: I do limes main for focus. So when I, um, when I need to focus more, I don't have, I don't, I don't have ADD, but sometimes, you know, like I've got to like, especially after I a lecture or I have to write a big, webinar, or lecture, or what have you, I'll use lion's mane. And then I'll use something called hooperzine, which increases, huperzine mm-hmm. A, which increases acetylcholine. So it's really good for like, and magnesium three and eight. And so that's just really good for like neurons and like signaling and really inspiring. <laughs> yeah. Like it gets, gets me like on my A game real quickly you know, mm-hmm. for sure. And then when it goes down to the, the ovaries, now I'm looking at antioxidants because antioxidants have a huge role, right? There's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, you know stuff that can go wrong in the antioxidants, or excuse me, in the f- production of hormones in the ovaries. And believe it or not, melatonin is a big one. So mm-hmm. now we're back to proper sleep to make melatonin. Some women actually have to take a little bit of extra melatonin. It can be really helpful for her ovarian health. Um, think of your lutein. We corpus luteum is your lutein cells. So your lutein foods, beta carotene, vitamin C, zinc, selenium, things like that can all be really, really. Nutritive to every aspect of the body, but specifically, we're talking about um, the ovaries. And then, when it comes to herbs, I'll be honest my favorite herb by far is Vitex or Chase Tree, which I know you guys talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it, I've been for years and years and years, I've called it the adaptogen of the ovaries. Yeah. And then I heard an, an herbalist call it that, and I was like, I was right. I didn't, like, I just, <laughs> I think it just is super helpful for brain. Ovarian communication, um, and that one is one that you do every day of the cycle. I will have practitioners that say, "Well, I started at ovulation." I'm like, "Why? You missed the boat." Like it's brain ovarian yeah. communication. You have to start that right from the get. Some
1: women, like I've had patients that either it kind of like delayed their ovulation yeah. or delayed their period. It kind of like makes their period irregular, so they yeah. kind of freak out. And so sometimes I will actually do the opposite and I'll just, um, give it to them during their follicular Follicular phase. phase. And so, and I've had other practitioners like, why are you doing that? Like, that's so not what you should be doing. And I was like, well, you know, we're going to just try it in their follicular phase and try and then slowly get it into their luteal phase too. So they could take it every month. But, um, yeah, it's interesting when you take Vitex for maybe a week or two and it kind of, it's already doing wonders on their cycle, but quote unquote wonders is like, it's making their cycle irregular Shitty and trying to, to balance things <laughs> out, right? Yeah.
0: Well, it's, I think it's hard to uh, to not stress out about that enough to give it like a full three cycles, which is yeah. really yeah. what's required. Mm-hmm. And if you think of Vitex as kind of an HPO axis regulator, that brain-ovary communication that's going to take some time to adjust that or potentially mm-hmm. reestablish that, uh, but it can be really scary when you notice a change that you were not hoping for. Right. <laughs> in that like first cycle, it's hard yeah. to stick with it. And then you know, I I've had a client actually that I recommended to stop taking it, not because I didn't think it would work, but because it stressed her out so much to oh. see that change in her cycle. I was like, we can try something else. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yep. we'll just switch.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, lots of options. That's what I love about naturopathic medicine and functional medicine. Is like mm-hmm. there's just so many options. You can use food as medicine. Food alone has obviously is where you get your antioxidants. And mm-hmm. so, you know, eating the rainbow, fruits and vegetables, that's really where you should be focusing.
2: Yep. Yeah, 100%.
0: And then I think there are some, you know, some opportunities to look into potential sources of inflammation that are affecting ovarian function and addressing that from mm-hmm. a natural perspective. There's like a million different options there because there are lots of things that could be causing those types of issues. But just got to just got to throw that in there another shout out for gut and immune health and yeah. You know exploring whether or not you might have some sensitivities to things in your diet or your environment, toxic exposures, those are all things that can affect this process and affect the the health of those follicles and the ability to produce progesterone.
2: It's so true. And the one thing the other thing we didn't talk about was thyroid, you know people oh yeah, hypo, go for it. Hyperthyroid in talking about what gets in the way of um ovulation, progesterone production, or even just the cycle in general, like any kind of thyroid problem that's not being managed very well. It's The cycle's oftentimes the first to go. We talk about like, oh, hypothyroid, hair loss and weight gain and constipation and dry skin, but we forget like, oh, it can cause really heavy cycles. It can cause skip cycles. It can cause irregular cycles. It can cause infertility. It's like the thyroid is really, really critical to our reproductive health.
0: Yeah, definitely, and literally. the things that I just mentioned are some of the biggest drivers. Like you know, the gut health stuff, the immune mm-hmm. stuff, the food sensitivities. Those are some of the biggest drivers of thyroid dysregulation, particularly autoimmune thyroid, which is the majority of low thyroid cases. That That's the
1: truth. Yeah,
0: so it's for sure all connected. And I yeah definitely don't want to leave this episode without mentioning the thyroid. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So I think that's going to
1: wrap things up. I don't think we have any other questions. I love this episode already. I feel like it gave a really comprehensive overview of what progesterone is, how it can get messed up, what signs to look for, and then things that you can start to do to, to fix
2: it and really simple things that you can just start from home. So. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the goal, right? That's what we want. We don't want to make it expensive or complicated or crazy as much as hopefully you can avoid it. We can do right. simple stuff. then, you know, every woman benefits. Exactly.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Carrie Jones. We really appreciate you being with us and sharing more of your wonderful hormone knowledge. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having you back in the future.
2: Likewise. Thank you both so much.